Hey, y'all. Before you listen into this particular interview, this Justin Bibb interview, I wanted to let you know that the, the sound is a bit wonky all the way up until you get to about minute 26. I don't normally post uh, the, this long of a podcast, um, but these are interviews of mayoral candidates in my city. And so I thought it was important to be able to put them all out. So that's what's going on. I'm sorry about the inconvenience. You should be able to make out a good, good portion of it. Even if you skip to about minute 26, it's still great content. Again, I'm sorry about that, but I thought it was better to put it out with a disclaimer than to not put it out at all. Enjoy your listening. What do we got? You ready? We live. Are we live now? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Start talking about food. So I want to know who said Dave's had the best chicken. Oh, that's what I want to know. Listen, man. Uh, <laughs> you two D haters start there. Man. You start this day. Like, you know, you two D. This is uh, a Irish seller from the Sausage Podcast. You know what I mean? I'm really excited. We're here at Deep Roots Experience in the historic Fairfax Central neighborhood. Um, we're really excited. I am Diamond Sellers, and kid from Cleveland. I went to Collinwood Middle School. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, it was only around four or five years. Don't make a face like that. If he was there, he was there. If not, it's cool. Um, and I, since I got married, I get my chicken from my place. That's my thing. Oh, my place barbecue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spot, yeah. I'm going to toss it over to my co-host. What do you think? I'm Alex. I'm Sullivan. I'm the principal of the office of for Change. I was born and raised in Cleveland, um, from the inner city to the suburbs. I've lived in almost every city throughout the country. Um, I currently work and live in this community, Cleveland, and I get my chicken from Cleveland. Oh, you sticking with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I swear, I've never had chicken with that. It's only been stuffed with potatoes, right? Like, yes, no. like Charmaine gets a five dollar holiday, and I get one with like shrimp and extra vegetables. My thing. I might have to check out the chicken though. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, who we have here with us today, he will introduce himself by answering three questions for us. Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. Who are your people? Yeah. And why do you love the city? Good. Uh, Justin Bibb, uh, born and raised in the Southeast Side, a kid from Dub. Um, you know, and for me, my upbringing is really rooted in that lived experience growing up in Mount Pleasant, in my neighborhood. You know, my parents were born in school. My mom was a social worker. My dad was a cop and a firefighter. Uh, my pops was actually in Shaker. All my mom was in Cleveland. And just seeing the juxtaposition between what we had in Cleveland versus what my pops had in Shaker just really taught me early on kind of how to navigate multiple worlds, right? And that was kind of my lens of what Cleveland was and what it could be. Um, and I would say um, my people are, are everybody in the city of Cleveland, right? You know, in this campaign, I'm trying to represent everybody. You know, their pain, because I've experienced their pain, uh, their hopes and their dreams, too, as well. Um, and for me, I guess my journey to this moment, to run for mayor, really started um, my junior year, right? You know, my first love. Like high school? High school, man. High school. So my first love was I wanted to play ball at Duke. D1. I was dunking my sophomore year. Uh, <laughs> I know it was soft flex. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I had a, I was I had a like, I want y'all to know that I could have played with Duke. I told you there were problems. So I went to high school at Trinity High School. And 
Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so it's uh, it's my sophomore year. We're playing Garfield. All right, I'm on JV, and I go for a rebound. Turn my meniscus. Nice. And it's at a time I was going to Blue basketball camp. Um, my parents like gave me five construction at a private shooting camp. Like I was like I was all in on basketball. And my mom was like, "Look, this is like the time to drive was really hot." She was like, "Look, little girl, you ain't the next LeBron James. You better get in the books." Cause I had like a two point two, two point three at the time. Yeah. And she was like, "You're kind of good at public speaking. Why don't you drop in my crowd?" I'm like, "All right, bet." So I drop in my crowd. And I'm like so geeked for the tryout. I guess it's law and order. Right. And I bomb tryout. I'm like, damn, like what's what's next? So I'm going down to my locker and I see a cat with a West Clark for president t-shirt on. I'm like, what is this? He's like, oh, it's got a president. You just come out, check out an event. I'm like, all right, let me check this out. I loved it. I worked on my first presidential campaign. Uh, for my junior year, and then obviously West Clark and I the nomination to be the Democratic nominee president. No, I, I work for John Kerry. <laughs> well, yeah, right, right. Then I work for John John Kerry campaign through Angela Winston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Democratic Party. Thousand Angela Winston. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And she just showed me the ropes at an early age about how to navigate through politics. And I was like, all right, I'm going to college in DC. I got an early decision as a senior to go to American University uh, and work for Obama, and really the rest is history. And I knew that if you're in high school, like, I'm gonna come back to another American school. Yeah, so that was kind of the path. So, like, but why the, like, why, why Cleveland? Like, what do you love about the city? Is the question. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's the culture, right? I mean, um, I think about the vibrancy of my block growing up as a kid, you know, going to come heads, right? My church was awesome. Um, and, and just seeing how much of a community we had at the time. Uh, well, I grew up in Zion Chapel Baptist Church. Right? He said, full cup. Zion Chapel so actually went there. I was in the church. Baptized in 85, in the church choir, you know? Uh, my, my grandpa was a deacon at Mount Haven, right? So, you know, I was I was in the church day to day out of vacation Bible school. Um, and, you know, Cleveland has always had this this grit and this resilience that you really can't get in the other city, right? I live in D.C., I live in London, I live in New York. And in my head, I'm like, Cleveland has all these great assets and potential for world class city. But it's our mentality of like this what was me mindset that has held us back for a long time. And, what those other cities have done in a, in a pop, more positive way, they've embraced black culture. Think about DC. Like when I was in DC, you know, I'm, I'm going to Howard Homecoming, I'm like, man, like, U Street is dope. Right? Where's our U Street? You know, I'm in, I'm in Harlem. Where's our Malcolm X Boulevard? Right? You know, where's our Frederick Douglass Avenue? Right? I mean, and, and how do we bring that level of investment to our culture to really embrace us being the majority black city? That's, I mean, that's what this is. That's, there's, there's arguments that we've made that there were investments from some of the some of the large corporations that wiped out our version yeah. wiped out our version of Malcolm uh, X Boulevard. That it existed, but it no longer exists. Yeah. So how would it like, sounds like something that you want to bring back, how would you do that? Absolutely. I mean, look, it, it existed um, and it was destined to be a white flag. Um, due to you know Kelvin and agreements that didn't allow us to buy homes, right, in, in, in our own neighborhood to really build true wealth. You think about Mount Pleasant and Miles, that was before it was a black neighborhood, it was a Jewish neighborhood. Um, and you know, there were policies 
that were enacted at almost every level of government, right, that exacerbated white flight. And then when we got to the block, they're like, no, we're not going to invest in Right? So these are historical issues that we have to tackle. So what I want to do, number one, think about all the money we're going to get from President Biden right now. I have a billion dollars, right? And he takes some of that capital, not to get too much of policy, but he takes some of that capital, leverage that capital, and really has a concerted investment in Mount Pleasant, in Buckeye, in Glenville, in Lee Harbor. That could be powerful. But we got to deal with residents having a it can't be outside forces telling us what we need to do more, but it's how we do it in a way where residents are actually guiding that investment. And it really reflects the culture and attitude. That's perfect. How do you actually do that? Yeah, so one of the one things I want to do is uh, right now, every council person has a say of how they spend what they call community development block mentality, right? Most residents don't have a say on how they spend. So as mayor, I want to open up the budget process where every resident and every board can say, here's how much people want to spend that we work hard for as taxpayers to be spent in my neighborhood. That, that's, that's number one. Secondly, um, there should be a, a chamber of commerce for black owned businesses in the side, where they can tell the city of the city government, here's what we need in order to prosper, right? Because your main streets in the neighborhood determine what your side streets. You go to Lee Harbor, there's not one uh, sit-down restaurant in Lee Harbor in Not one. Right. You know I had to think hard when you first said that. Like, think, think about, about that for a minute. Now, because I'll be over there a lot. Well, like, not even Sharks are not far from here. Right? So you really sit down in Sharks. That's crazy, right? Nah, I mean, unless you're kind of like beating in, but like, who sits down there? You know what I'm saying? Like the real like service, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's crazy. Four or five stars. You got West Side, you got plenty of plenty of So those kind of basic investments, right? That's true. That's true. We talked a little bit about culture. Um, and I know that you I, I wouldn't say I want to change it. I think we should be elevating what was already here. You know, um, I get excited about what Amanda King should have done with us. You know, she is a premier artist that is the change the narrative of how art should really shape the social justice kind of policies and mindsets of residents. Uh, look at what Archie Green is doing, right? You know, with adoption, hip hop, and mental health, like that's critical. Um, uh, and then, like most folks outside of people don't know, like Bone Thugs, right? Kid Cudi, right? We don't tell that story enough as a city, um, and it's important that we kind of elevate that mindset and elevate the culture on many different platforms. And I think city government should be a, a key catalyst for doing that. Right? Investing in those types of programs, investing in those parts, putting them on possibly Well, since you're here, we might as well pivot into the, the artist questions. Yeah, right. Um, let the flow of the conversation be there. So, other than the ones that you've named, yeah. the ones that have been like consistently getting worked, what has been your personal like investment or support yeah. for black artists, including? 
Well, I've been on the board of uh, the African American Advisory Committee for the students in for thinking about five years now, right? And working with that body to make sure that, you know, black artists can access and be supported by the community of artists, one of the most premier art institutions in the country, really, the world. Um, for a long time, we didn't have one black curator of art inside the CMA. That's changed. Uh, I several years ago, we started a publisher program to create more people of color to work at the art museum to explore how to increase uh, black art inside that institution. That's essential. And then I've been on the Borderlands studio for the last four or five years uh, and trying to push them to kind of think differently about what equity looks like in the public art space uh, and how to use public art as you know a vehicle to give people pride and hope um, and just um, excitement to kind of public spaces. I think that's well, let me ask this question, right? Um, because it sounds like those are those are more established institutions, right? Yeah. So we're we're sitting in a space um, that is really about curating the voices of black artists, yeah. right? And being an institution that's black, all black led, focused on black culture, right? And so, like, how would you um, how would you support those? And what has been your level of support for for organizations like these? Right, that's not just the black artists, but also on the owner distributor side yeah. of the artwork because on some level art is business, right? Um, and so like, you know, these artists should be paid with their work, but they also have space on the walls so that they're not competing with their storage, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But like art competitive. Yeah. I know what I'm saying. But yeah. how do you support places like elite groups to make sure that like we're on an even playing field with what is one of the premier uh, art museums in the country. Well, I think one of the things that uh, I've done throughout my whole life is I've tried to be a connector, right? To connect kind of those grassroots activist organizations with institutional power. Because without that connectivity, I don't think you can get real long term systemic change. And for me, power is all about proximity, right? If institutions don't have that proximity to organizations like yours, then they won't know. We have to and then in terms of leveraging resources and capital, it's important to have those relationships, right? So you can't have the resources and capital to invest and expand the good work that you're doing. So that's really been, I think, my role uh, as a community leader in this community for over a decade. Um, but I would say, as I think about how I want to leverage political power as mayor, what I get excited about is, you know, we spend millions of dollars investments in this community, right? Um, and we have a public a public art curator that's focused on investing in public art and our public parks taking the side. No, we don't. That's a program well, they have like a I was just reading about this last night that it's not an art curator that they have, but there's a program they have at the city, at the city level who's doing that, who's doing that work as one. Yeah, a public arts coordinator. That's what it is. Public arts coordinator. Shout out to Alana for getting us up. Appreciate it, girl. Um, but it's one person for the whole city. Yeah, it's a black woman. She's looking out for the whole for the whole city. So it has to. I mean, that kind of work has to be expanded, right? Um, and I think public art, especially whether it be installations or murals, um, I think are just key anchors and bedrocks of really making sure that our neighborhoods are vibrant um, and reflect that culture I talked about earlier. Um, and you know, I get excited when I see a mural in my neighborhood. 
yeah, right. And I get excited to explore when I'm traveling the country. That's one of the things I love to do, like exploring street art, right? And it's a great asset that we should do leverage a lot more in the city. So, are you a hard buyer yourself? Not yet. I mean, I, I can't afford big, big, fancy pieces quite yet. Well, I mean, but, you know, you might yeah, not know. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that that was, I thought that that was true too. And like, on a more personal tip, like, I wasn't uh, an art collector prior to David uh, getting involved in the yeah. roots, right? Yeah. Um, but he showed me the power of the investment, right? When it comes to art, and it's not as expensive as you think. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so like. The, I want, yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that later. I just want to let people know that like, you can, you could probably afford, you you can afford art, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and very, very good art. Yeah. Um, like the stuff that you see here. It's not great pieces. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not crazy. Yeah. So. That, that's awesome.
what you're talking about, it seems like it involves so much relationship building. It does. How do you plan on that? It does. Um, well, one of the first things I want to do uh, once elected is you're seeing this in other states across the country, Birmingham, Alabama, Tacoma, Washington, where the mayor hires a chief racial equity officer. And it's an independent office that's integrated across every single city department. And their whole job is to analyze every policy, every regulation, every decision that that city makes and examine whether or not it's having a disparate impact on people of color in the city. That's the I think secondly is, you know, the mayor's seat in Cleveland is supposed to be the second most powerful seat in terms of political power in Ohio, uh, outside of the government of Ohio. And there is power in using the word bullpit to hold our banks accountable, to hold our foundations accountable, uh, to hold the private sector accountable, to truly put, you know, real deeds behind the words when you talk about, you know, racism and, you know, equity. We had this big hoopla last year about running big better races about the color grasses. What did we really do? You know the damn thing? We do the damn thing. But we all applauded ourselves. Every every corporation had a statement after George Floyd's murder. But what has changed a year later? For black people, we said, how much? And, and so I think if we don't have people that are going to hold these institutions accountable, hold their foot to fire. Everyone should same old, same old. Um, so I got a couple of questions, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned like, you know, everybody thinks that caring about black people is cool now. You know what I mean? But it doesn't, it doesn't actually mean anything, right? Um, and I want to go in two directions. First, we'll talk about like uh, culture and like black joy. Right, and so like too often we we deal in like black death, right? Um, but we don't we don't celebrate ourselves enough, right? So a couple of weeks back we saw a couple of pictures of you in gumbo, right? Yeah, so, like you was doing your thing. I, I had a sh- I, I had a shout out. I wanted to hear my song, and they never played it. So. <laughs> and so like um, I wonder what you think about like what black joy looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, in a city like this, in a city like Cleveland, right? Like, what does Black Joy look like? How how can the mayor yeah. or the city government be be helpful? Like, another way. I mean, the only way I can describe this is kind of how I experience Black Joy in my own life, right? I mean, I get joy when I'm at an event like Gumbo, when I'm just kicking it, right? Listening to great music, fellowship with my people, letting our hair down. Like, it ain't all formal and proper, and it's just us celebrating Black Joy, right? I get joy when I'm in my church, when I used to go to church, right? I'm with my family, uh, and I worship uh, and reflect on, on my journey uh, and reflect on what God has done for me as a man of faith, as a Christian. Um, you know, and I, I get black, and I, 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 I get joy when I'm able to spend time with my, my, my family, right? You know, my grandmother's turned 92, all my cousins were over, we had some. Don't judge it, but he has some KFC. That's my grandma's favorite chicken. <laughs> so don't judge this. No, grandma just to see grandma happy on the front porch, his chicken that you picking. It's you know, I mean, there's a lot of joy in that, right? So um, just doing kind of everyday things, and you know, in the moment where you're not all formal, you know, you're not in a work setting, but you can really just enjoy life and be with family and friends and people that you love and care about. I think it's important. And being black is a blessing. Yeah, that was my wife. <laughs> um, 
So that leads me to the next question, right? Code switching. Right? It seems like if I'm being honest with you, it seems like you might have down to the phone. You know what I'm saying? No, like you don't like real, right? So like you can't really see this at home when you sat down, the lights are on. Well, I can see you got rope chain under the white cop. You know what I'm saying? Like it's you know, like I can you can tell, you know what I'm saying? And it epitomizes the code switching, right? So I would be interested in you telling us a story about a time you had to remind somebody that you was complete. And you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, so this was uh, a couple of years ago. I had my first evaluation at UMAC. And in my evaluation, it was like, um, Justin, he's so professional. And he dresses the part. He's almost too perfect for the job. Yo, I've heard that about you already. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. You know, it, he's like, this can't be real, right? And and um, and I had him wrong. And I said, well, can you explain this to me? He's like, well, you know, like most guys come in dressed like they're kind of dressed up, but not really. But you're always dressed up, and you're always prepared for the meeting. I was like, look, growing up where I grew up, seeing the sacrifice that my mama had to make to make sure I made an off the block. She told me to. Dress for the job that you want, not the job you have. Always be prepared in the meeting because you never know who's going to call on you in the meeting. And um, know that you're representing not only your family legacy, but your people. Right? So if I show up in a cold job, sloppy every day, and not be prepared, then how am I representing my people? Yeah. Right? Right? And so um, you can be on point and prepared and ready for the job. And still, you embrace your blackness. Those things are mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to also recognize, especially in this moment, especially in this election, with so many black candidates in the race, that black leadership is not monolithic. Right? Everybody's not going to be a preacher politician. That's okay. Right? Everyone's not going to have, have the same story to struggle. Right? That's okay. But and it's okay for us to embrace the, the, the wide spectrum of what black leadership can look like because we need black leaders in every sector doing different things, moving in different ways. Yeah. Because without that, we're not going to be successful long term as people. It's important. So with the legacy of black leadership in this in this city, which there's a long legacy of black leadership. Um, a strong black leadership in the city. Where do you see yourself in that legacy? Where do you want your your imprint to be, right? Um, or like in that in that yeah. history? You know, I get excited about defining what the the new era of black political leadership can look like in Cleveland, especially in this election right now. You know, everyone talks about Carl Stokes as the first black mayor of a major American city, and I think that's great. Um, but you know. I think we've done a terrible job in this city of investing in the political bench of black political leaders. Uh, you're seeing that in this election today, right? I mean, um, I think people are just disgusted with the negativity in the race. Um, I know many folks I talked to didn't even know who they're going to vote for today because of all the negativity. Um, and in almost every seat of political power in this community, you've asked the question of who's next, Right. And if I'm blessed and fortunate to win, I want to invest serious capital, both financial capital and political capital in who's the next Justin Bibb, right? 
who's the next Angela Woodson? Yeah. Right. And it's not just, you know, elected officials, but black pollsters, black researchers, right? Uh, black communications consultants, the whole spectrum of black political talent. Because in most cities, you have that in Atlanta, you got it in Detroit, you got it in DC. We don't have that at scale in Cleveland. And I think it's one of the biggest things holding us back as a city. I will say representation in itself will do something major for the city of Cleveland. Yeah. But I wonder still how, like, what do you envision when you actually get into that seat and do these things that you're talking about? I mean, for me, it's all about the outcomes, right? You know, um, I get excited about if I'm lucky to win and I'm there for a couple terms, not for life, but a couple terms. Okay. Um, That's an important distinction. Yeah, right? yeah. Because you realize that, like, I was in the 11th grade when uh, when Frank Jackson was yeah. first elected. At m- my low, <laughs> you know I was a like, freshman in college. Like, I was a freshman. Crazy, in college. 16 bro. years. Yeah. Go ahead, finish your answer. Um, I just, you know, like, I want to see my my hood where I grew up to, you know, be a, the beacon of the black middle class, right? I want to see a grocery store on my block that I can walk to within 15 minutes and get a good meal. You know, I want to see, I want to see um, Cleveland being on the map as one of the leading cities in America that supports black businesses and black entrepreneurs and black millionaires that you saw in Atlanta when Manor Jackson was the mayor of Atlanta. I mean, these are all things we can do with the right representation, as you said. Um, but it's going to take a mayor who understands the importance of sharing political power too, in order to get there. Cause I alone don't have all the answers. And anyone who tells you they do are, is, is misleading you, right? And so, so it's important to have somebody in that office that understands the importance of shared political power and shared political representation. So, I mean, going back to kind of the, the code switching conversation, when did you realize that you had to do that and how did you adjust? That's a good question. Um, I, I realized it in college. Um, because I went to a predominantly white institution. There were about 10 cats in my public affairs school, 10 black, black, black people in my public affairs school at American. And um, I realized, you know, for me to get the internship in Obama's office, even though I was working for, you know, a black member of the U.S. Senate, I had to be just as good as the white cats at Georgetown and network like they did, right? Moved in rooms like they did, right? Ask questions like they did and um, but not doing it in a way where I lose my sense of self, mm-hmm. but do it in a way that I can move and represent me, but also be successful and play the game in the way where I can play the game and get the kind of power I need to enact the kind of change I want to see. How did you find the balance? Right. Because that's a, that's a thing. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how did you, how did you find the balance? And then coupled with that question, um, do you think it will always be necessary? Right. Mm. This this idea of having to code switch essentially to make white people comfortable with your presence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I found the balance easier as I got older. Right. Because, you know, when you're a freshman in college, you're still trying to find yourself. Right. Even after college, I was still trying to find myself right in, in, in the world. And it was after college where I saw other black professionals, right. Who came from communities like I came from in DC, making moves where I felt like, okay, like this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
And I think it's, it's getting easier for us where we don't have to do that. But there are certain spaces where, um, especially when you get to some of the highest levels of corporate America, where it is, it is, uh, it can be an intimidating exercise to articulate your presence and power in a way where you're not scaring people out of the room. So what spaces do you think that like, let's say you're fortunate enough to become mayor. Yeah. What spaces do you anticipate you'll have to code switch in? None. So what does it look like? How does, how does, how does Justin Bibb from Dove show up in a space and, and not code switch at all? I be myself. Plain and simple. That's it. That's a good answer, sir. Um, I thought I was gonna have to. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, I, mean I ain't even mad. Like, yeah, just, I ain't even mad. Like, it's I mean, a, like, you it's know, a good answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dig into the dig into the the questions a little bit. Go ahead. Leave. I was like, I do want to pivot. If you yeah, yeah, go ahead. Man, it's hot in here, y'all. Y'all be sweating. <laughs> it ain't even the questions. Okay. Listen, I told you, it's warm in here. You know Man. You got some water. Y'all say do your thing. It's all good. It's all good. So, um, so you mentioned that your mom is a social worker. I am also a social worker. Right? That's awesome. Yeah. And so one of the things that I pride myself on, I work with people who are coming home from um, federal prison. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about what we refer to as returning citizens, how do you see them in the city of Cleveland? Mm. They, they play a large role. Uh, in the city and should play a large role, especially as they try to get their second chance. You know, I, um, I think about the, you know, the, the barriers, my uncle, uh, both my uncles went through when they came back from prison, one was in federal penitentiary and, um, getting a job was hard. Finding housing was hard, right. Finding an employer that was say, you know what, I'm going to give you that second chance was, was, was a major obstacle for him. Luckily you figured it out. And one of the things I get excited about is, you know, the mayor of Cleveland uh, appoints the CEO of the Workforce and Investment Board. Um, and right now that seat has been open for a couple of years. And we have this county office of reentry. Right. Those systems right now don't talk to each other at all. Barely. And so you think about the opportunity in this moment now to have the city take a lead on investing in supporting our uh, brothers and sisters coming back from prison and helping them start a business. Right. The city should be the first lead investor to help them start a business. Um, uh, when they're trying to figure out how to navigate housing, the city should go above and beyond and make sure they eradicate those barriers because a large majority of folks coming back from prison in the state are coming back right here in the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga mm-hmm. County. Right. Um, and then let's, let's talk about the war on drugs for a second. Right. I mean, you think about, you know, the, the massive war on drugs we've had with the mass incarceration of our people. Um, and now you're seeing the state might be moving to recreationalized marijuana, right? It's already, you know, we're, we're all already now allowing medical marijuana across the state. But I was talking to a brother the other day. He said, you know, he had his own medical marijuana license, but got caught with marijuana and they put him back in jail. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. So we've decriminalized uh, marijuana at a certain level in the city. But we got to go one step further, which I think we should be pardoning everybody in the city of Cleveland that's ever had a marijuana conviction, right? So that, that's no longer on the record. Um, and I think that's one thing we can do to really address some of the barriers that uh, folks are, are seeing in terms of trying to get their second chances they deserve in the city. And so there's a, there's a huge difference between policy and practice. Yeah. And so I, I, I can't say that Ohio hasn't done some things for returning citizens, 
But in that same breath, what are those relationships or what are those ideas around how are you going to actually enforce? Yeah. Versus either supporting a policy Mm -hmm. or initiating it, but like actually enforcing um, the policies that go forth regarding returning citizens. You know, you talked about the importance of relationships and, um, you know, I've been able to build some really good relationships in, in the reentry community already. Uh, Crystal Bryant used to work with the Office of Reentry. Used She's to run the great. office. Shout She's out to awesome. Crystal. Yeah. Um, Charles C., who is a, one of the most important minds on the topic locally. Uh, our sister, Aisha Bell Hardaway, right? Thank God she's back on the uh, Cleveland Police Commission right now. Her voice is needed on that body. Um, Damian Calvert. Yeah, right. Damian is amazing. Doing some great work in the community. Um, so I have a lot of the relationships. Um, and I'm going to rely on folks like that to guide me as a new, newly minted mayor on how to move the right way so that our policies can actually impact people in the way they need to be uh, supported. Yeah. So going into like making folks whole, yeah. right. Um, of that, that conversation, um, about like realizing that like, yeah, they need a pardon, but also coming home. Um, some of those folks need to be made whole. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and also, uh, not just for that community, but they're, there are folk who are losing their homes to no fault of their own. You know what I'm saying? Like um, red lighting out of their communities or Cleveland Clinic buying up their homes for pennies on the dollar, right? So like, what is the conversation around reparations for people who have been done wrong, particularly black people in the city of Cleveland, um, whose history has been erased, whose wealth has been erased? How do we go about making whole? Um, I know that like, uh, Evanston, Illinois yeah, has had yep. has had some success, like even like whether it be a drop in the bucket or not, but they're making yeah. making yeah. the difference. Right. So how do you foresee something like that happening in Cleveland? I, I foresee it in um, how I lead my agenda on investing in those places that have been disenfranchised for too damn long in our city. Right. And I have a personal interest in this because that's where that's where my life began. Right. Um so for me, it's can I raise four to five billion dollars over 10 years and concentrate that investment in the east side of the city? Right. Um, can we have a targeted community land trust that allows for residents like my grandma to buy to buy to buy the vacant lot next door to her? Right. And see the CDC invest in that neighborhood so she, she can build some wealth for her grandbabies to have a shot at going to a high, a good college. Mm-hmm. Right. Can we incubate the next generation of black millionaires that want to build a dope black grocery store in Mount Pleasant or Glenville? Right. So that we can eradicate the food deserts in our community. And 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 the city should be taking the lead role in those aspects. So um, I think it really boils down to the policy agenda and a policy agenda that's going to really be focused on uplifting black people in the city in a way that will allow for more black economic advancement. That's essential. It's essential. I think that that's helpful. Um, but what do you do about the, the trauma of it as well? So one part is financial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that kind of goes to your, your philosophy part, right? Like the philosophy underpins that, yeah, yeah. that stuff. So like, what do you do about the trauma? Right. Like what is the, what is the response of like, how we heal folk mm-hmm. and then make them whole as well financially. Yeah. Well, this is where um, some folks might 
disagree with me on this. There is a role for government in some areas of this, but there, in some ways there isn't a role for government, right? I think City Hall can, you know, better support and invest in mental health centers in our communities. That's important. Um, you know, more wellness and mindfulness programs inside our public schools. I mean, we have one of the highest teen suicide rates in the nation inside CMSD. That's a tragedy and it should outrage everybody in the city. Um, and when you don't have a, a park you can go to in your neighborhood where you can take a walk, or you can run or have a picnic to clear your head and de-stress, of course that anxiety is going to continue to boil up, right? So there are pragmatic things we can do on a policy level. But the, on the other side, you know, we, we as a people have to, number one, you got to get honest about mental health, right? Mm-hmm. And call it what it is uh, and have those conversations. Uh, certainly as mayor, uh, I can help lead awareness around that, uh, better support our faith-based institutions. Um, and you know, for me, the black church was a savior for me and my family. And that's where I found a lot of my wholeness, right. Um, growing up as a kid, you know, and, and going through what we grew up with in, in Mount Pleasant and, um, and better supporting our faith-based institutions to do that, I think is critical too. But at the same time, we, as a people have to figure out how do we collectively find ways to fix ourselves, right? Because there's not going to be one mayor that can solve all these problems. And let me tell you, if you ever ran for office, particularly a seat like mayor, it can numb you when you look at the laundry list of issues we have in our city. Mm. It is overwhelming, right? And I believe until we find a way to get people, give everyday folks the agency and power to know that they can also affect change, then we won't see that long-term systemic change because government can only do so much, yeah. right? Because I truly believe that change comes from the bottom up, not the top down, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there wouldn't have been a Voting Rights Act or Civil Rights Act without Dr. King stirring the consciousness of the people, right? So there's an important role for everyday folk to stir the consciousness to force the political winds towards some of these issues we're talking about. If you don't have one, I got to yeah. follow okay, up. Go you good? Okay. Yeah. So I want to follow up to that um, because I've read some reports from uh, Randy McShepard from Policy Bridge, mm-hmm. right? Um, I really think that like he and that, and that think tank should be far more well-known, mm-hmm. right? Um, in Cleveland, because he's like put some serious thought and actually written out some solutions to these issues. Right. Um, The reason I bring that up is because uh, he wrote a report called missing in action when he presented on it. You were in the audience. I saw you. You you and every other black person was, was in the audience. But um, the question that I have is why come to the political sector? Mm. Right. So he, he divvied them up into civic leaders, uh, community leaders, um, business leaders and political leaders, right? And it's it feels like you had a pretty good handle or good trajectory yeah. when it came to the civic and or business, right? So why make the pivot? Why go? Why political? Yeah, um, what I clearly realized throughout the trajectory of my career is that you can only enact so much change from the sidelines, Right. And I'm not saying that being a civic leader is on the sidelines or being a CEO is on the sidelines. But 
when you think about how much political power and the and the systems that the mayor owns and controls, there's a lot of opportunity in that, right? CMSD, the airport, water department, parks and recreation, uh, our police department, the city prosecutor's office. Every issue that I see our people suffering from, the mayor has the ability to further tilt the moral arc of the universe towards justice a bit more in that direction. But we haven't seen a sense of urgency around that in the city, probably since Stokes, Mm. right? And so I made the pivot because coming out of 2020, you saw that the mayor matters. The mayor controls the police chief, right? The mayor controlled who got vaccinated first, who got, how they got tested for COVID. Um, and, 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 And without a strong, dynamic mayor in this moment, I think Cleveland will continue to be behind for the next generation. And I didn't want to let that happen. I think you touched on a little bit, a, a little bit of this earlier. Yeah. But I'm curious just why Cleveland. You've been around the world. Yeah. Around the Because this is my West. home. This is my home. Okay. Um, I, I get excited about my grand, my, my future kid riding his bike on Dove, like I rode my bike on Dove with the same level of joy and excitement, right? I get excited about Cleveland being on the world stage as a city who got police reform, right? And we're, in, we're, and we're a global model for social justice. I get excited about actually having a lakefront that works, that everybody can have access to, right? I get excited about being able to be a precursor to allow for the creation of the next generation of black millionaires in this city. Right. Um, and New York is great. DC is great, but it ain't home. Right. It's something like, it ain't nothing. It is, it's no place like home as Dorothy would say. <laughs> right. And so, um, and I think about the sacrifices that my grandparents made, my parents made, and I feel like there's a calling on my heart to give back in this moment in this way. And, and that's for me, that's why Cleveland. Some would say being in this position would kind of detach you from the community. How do you plan on remaining connected? Mm, proximity is everything. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to stop knocking on doors. I'm not going to stop walking the street. Um, I'm not going to have gatekeepers. Um, and I'm not going to lose my North star which is social justice, which is equity, which is my faith. And um, will I make mistakes? Absolutely. I want to make mistakes. But um, I think I've, I've, I've built a life and I've built a tribe around me to make sure that I stay to my center. And when I don't, I know they're going to hold me accountable and put me back. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to pivot a little personal because <laughs> you took us all the way into the, yeah. to the policies. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you snuck Sorry. it in there, man. I mean, it's hard not to when you're running for mayor. I mean, come on, man. Fair, right? All right, cool. We're going to go a little personal, though, right? Yeah. Um, I want to know what what excites you about life other than work. Mm. What excites you about life other than work? Uh, Music. Okay. So you open the door. Nope. Uh oh. You open the door. Uh oh. Uh oh. (laughs) I don't even know why you did Uh that. That's fine. No, I mean, you said music. 
Yeah. Okay. Who are you listening to currently? Who's your favorite artist? All right. Um, right now, I'm, I'm really waiting on the new Kanye, by the way. I'm trying to see what that's going to do. Oh, you're one of those people who haven't yeah. canceled Kanye, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's fair. I, I mean, understand. I might have had a, a leaked version. But right now, <laughs> so I'm kind of listening to that right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, I love the last J. Cole album. Fire. That, that was passes. great. That passes. Um, and uh, favorite rapper of all time is obviously Torres B.I.G. <laughs> so David is a huge, huge music head, right? But um, I do, dog. I don't know. Was that a was, did, did, I, did I mess up? Fail? Like, I, I'm not <laughs> so that's cool. If that's like, if that's your bag, that's fine. Are I'm you a big jazz in, guy too, by the way? Are you digging in the crates, right? Like, are you um, when you say jazz, Thelonious, Thelonious Monk? Okay, right. Okay. That's fair. Um, there you go. You know what I'm uh, saying? Like digging the crates a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Get some dust on your yeah, face. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, Coltrane, Miles Davis, uh, Charlie Parker. Um, you know. That was that yeah, was impressive. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah. And then and then so my, so my dad so my dad was a smooth dude, right? Every two years he get a new Cadillac. <laughs> the twenty four month Cleveland lease for real. <laughs> the twenty four month lease. And I swear when that. Um, when that Temptations album came out, uh, Temperature Rising, yeah, it was on repeat. Man. That and Luther was just like, yeah, I'm a Luther kid repeat. too myself. Yeah, and so, so. like you know, kind of getting into since we're talking about Luther and the Temptations, we gotta talk about love. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so clearly, you're not married, right? No, um, no. You know, and you know how Cleveland is. We we say that we're Democrats, but but really we're super conservative. Right? Like, let's, let's keep it a buck. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's like, yeah, 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 where's yeah. your lady? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Where's your partner? Like, what's yeah, the, yeah. what's the, is that something that has a little bit of your focus or is the career the only path? No, for you right it now? certainly has a focus. Obviously, you know, I'm dating. Um, and, oh, but all right. Now, Look at you. you know, but right now it's important for me to, you know, focus on the election. Um, and, and really protect that part of who I am uh, because, you know, my parents divorced when I was four. Mm, uh, I'm a hopeless romantic. And I think it's important as you enter the public sphere to protect those relationships that you hold dear to ensure that it's the right one is rooted in the right thing so that I don't have to have a divorce like my parents did. That's right. Right. Uh, so, Yeah. So I'm a pastor, and like you know, when we start talking like that marriage, you protecting things, it's a faith thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Right. What yeah. church are you attending? Are you attending church? Olive Institutional Baptist Church. Okay. Proud Olivite. member. <laughs> Olivite. I ain't never heard that one, bro. He's an Olivite. Olivite. Uh, been a member for over twelve years now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that like um, plays a part in not only grounding your policies but your relationships? The the reason I'm asking that is because like. Your, your spouse, uh, whoever that may be, will be a, a huge part Absolutely. of that circle, but they're not the only part of that circle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, like, do you have a circle that's not connected necessarily to the work that you're doing that helps keep you grounded? And how did those relationships develop? Do you have those? I was, you may not go into, like, who they are. But yeah. Like, yeah. Those- I certainly do. Um and I think it's, I, I'm happy you brought that up because I truly believe in the importance of being equally yoked, mm-hmm. right? 
And um, what, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Um, now, I'm I'm not a man of the cloth, so don't don't. I tell mean, me I'm, not about to, I'm not gonna scripture you, you to know? death, but you know, say like I want to know what you mean by it. Right? Here, here's here's what I mean by it. It's 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 two two souls, you know, who have their own distinct destinies, and you know they come together, and both of those destinies are aligned and interconnected. Mm. So they don't need each other, mm-hmm. but it's aligned in a way that together it's a powerful. Right. To me, that's what being equally yoked is. Fair. That that her career Solid is just as important as yeah. my career. I don't care if I'm mayor or run for president of the United States, mm-hmm. right? If she's a teacher or a nurse or whatever, it's just as important. Is she a teacher? No. <laughs> you know the Twitter figures, they're going, bro. Like they're going. They but, got, they trying but, to find her, you know? Um, that's important. <laughs> and then, you know, um, I definitely have a crew that keep me that 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 guides me and keeps me whole, right? My pastor is part of that. Um my mom's a part of it, right? Um, and um, I believe that although my pops is left, he still talks to me every day. And so um, I believe in that spiritual connection, and um, I rely on his his insight and counsel from above as well. Um, if you're thinking, if I'm thinking about, like, it seems like family um, and those interpersonal relationships mean a lot to you. Yeah, they do. Stepping into this seat puts you in a limelight. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned protecting at yeah. least one of those relationships. Yeah. How do you how do you see yourself actually being able to do that? I don't know yet. Okay. That's I'm fair. Figuring out as I go. You know? Um, I'm doing my best not to lose my sense of self. Hence why I'm at gumbo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm still young and want to enjoy my city like everybody else. Obviously I can't be out here acting a fool. Right. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's important not to take myself too seriously in the process. Right. And cause when you do that, and I think that leads to some misguided actions. So this is the therapist in me. Uh Oh, what does your, <laughs> I'm not going to get to it. What does your self care look like? Oh man. Well, I love binge watching TV, like the wire West wing, my two go-tos. <laughs> Those are heavy shows to be like benching, bro. I thought he was going to say something. Yeah, where's the show? That's how it goes. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad show, but that's a heavy show, bro. Not really to me. Especially when you actually run for office. That ain't heavy as you think, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Especially when you're running for mayor in Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. And then I love working out, right, when I can. I love to play some ball when I can. You know, I still I ain't, I can't dunk no more, but I can still shoot every now and then. Um, and uh, he's trying know. to let you know you can still catch the smoke on the court. Okay, it's just, it's just a, it's just uh, a little slight flex. He's been flexing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, small flex. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, tell me. okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I like to cook. Okay. When can I, you when, cook? When I when I find time to buy, yeah, I can cook. I got a couple good dishes that can that can go, bro. We go. got two, so we we running out of time. We got, two, <laughs> we got two questions that's gonna answer this for us, right? Yeah, like this is okay. one. The first one is, who makes the macaroni and cheese at your house? Like with your family, who makes the macaroni and cheese at your house? Oh, family? my mom. So can your macaroni and cheese touch your mom? No, not even uh-uh. close. No. What's your dish? Uh, my dish, uh, blackened salmon, uh, couscous with roasted Brussels sprouts. 
That's like that's like my go-to. Okay, so it's not a soul food dish. No, nah, but, it, but it's like a, it's like because well, I, I mean, my mom like, is like crabs to soul food. Good, I'm, not, like, I'm not gonna want my mama on soul food, man. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's disrespect. That's I mean, but who's gonna carry you know? the legacy if you're I not cooking? Know. I got I got a married brother, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's fair. Right? You know what I mean? Um, and so the, the last question I have: Do you have any? I don't want to. No, you sure? Yeah, go ahead. All right, last question. Yeah. Where do you get your chicken or your Polish boy from? Oh, my pleasant barbecue. But I don't, I don't, I get Polish boy from my, uh, my, my pleasant barbecue. Chicken, Kim's, or Popeyes? It's a solid answer. Solid answer. My pleasant barbecue, short rib dinner, sauce on everything, slice of pound cake. Woo wee. Next level, boy. Hey, man. I'm, yo, I got one more event, man. I'm, I'm going to have to rock out. All right. Yeah. Um, so we don't have any other questions for you. Is there something that you want to leave the people with? No, I just want to just, uh, shout out to all the great work you guys are doing for creating these conversations. You know, making it real, genuine, authentic. It's important, and just keep doing what you're doing. All right. All right, y'all. We are down with our first one. Uh, we're gonna shut it down for just a second, waiting for our second candidate to come through. We got Sandra Williams. I told y'all we packed. Um, yes. And then you know, tune in on Thursday if you're not gonna watch Sandra Williams. Tune in Thursday. We got Zach and Bashir. Interesting dichotomies, if yep. you ask me. You know what I'm saying? Bib and Williams on one day, Zach and <laughs> Bashir on another. Take with that what you will. Uh, but join us around 7 o'clock. We'll be live. Thanks again. See y'all later. Oh, this was live. Hey, man. Don't skip this outro. I've worked too hard on this outro. I've literally recorded this like 300 times, and I'm over it. You've listened to the, one of these episodes. You're definitely my friend right now because I put in a lot of work for this. Season two is about friendship. Share it with some of your friends. I don't care how you share it with them. Just share it with them, okay? Because like I'm really sick of recording this outro. And people don't even listen to outros anymore, but you better be listening to this outro. And if you're listening to this outro at this point, you are probably my best friend. And I appreciate you so much. So take it to that next level and subscribe on whatever podcast site you're listening to. And if you want to engage with more content, talk to me a little bit. We're so I said media on everything. Okay, enough. I'm done recording these outros because you're probably not even listening to it anyway. But if you are, thank you so much. Now go listen to the next episode.